Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Because we're here to know God and make Him known. And uh, we, we want to grow in our faith and also be prepared to share it, which is why we are trying to really understand Revelation the right way. Um, I met with, uh, with Jim earlier this week, and, and I, we were talking, and he told me that when he first read this title for this sermon series, Blessed Revelation the Right Way, he said he felt kind of like, that's really pompous. Why would you tell me you know the right way to read Revelation? And it's like, I get that. I get that. That feels kind of pompous, doesn't it? Because we have so many different perspectives regarding this last book, this last letter in God's word. And so I wanted to, to just make sure that Jim eventually said he got it. Uh, so just, just to give him credit, he's, he wasn't accusing me of anything. But just to make sure if there's anybody else, maybe you've missed a couple weeks here in the series and you aren't really on board to understand when I say, I want you to, to, to get revelation the right way. I want you to read it and understand it, not necessarily through a specific eschatological lens uh, that, that uh, you would read it, but rather to read it the way the Bible itself says it should be read. And that is uh, according to chapter 1, verse 3, that it is a blessing for everyone who reads it aloud, who hears what it says, and who obeys it. And so the goal of working through Revelation is not to tell you what you need to believe about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Instead, it is to tell you that when you read about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and you hear what God's word is saying to you and you obey what you find here in his word, you will be blessed instead of afraid. You'll be blessed instead of apprehensive. You'll find joy in the end times, instead of being like, oh, I hope it doesn't happen now, uh, you'll be able to join with others at the end of Revelation who say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. And so we are uh, right now working through the, the chapters two and three of Revelation, and these are the letters to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And Asia is what is today modern-day Turkey. And so there were seven churches in Patmos, where John was, is an island just off to the, uh, of the uh, coast there, the west coast. And uh, then there are seven churches there in the province of Asia. You could kind of ride in a circuit between those churches to share this letter. And so each of these churches receives a letter that they are supposed to receive from, from, from Jesus through John. And, and in each of these letters, Jesus says some specific, specific, not Pacific, that's the ocean, some specific things. And that is, first of all, he introduces himself through one of the descriptions that we see in chapter one. And he tells him, I know your works, but I have an issue with how you live this Christian life. And then he usually calls them to obedience and then gives a promise about those who are faithful, those who conquer, those who do what they're uh, commanded to do will receive a promise. And then there's always at the end uh, 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 a statement, let everyone who has ears to hear listen. 
And so, you know, we can, once again, we can put our hands up and just feel real quick. And you know if you have ears to hear because you can feel them if they're up there, right? And so this is for you. You and I, we should all be listening. We got through two churches last Sunday. I thought we'd get through four. That was a mistake. Um, uh, two churches last Sunday we got through, and we talked about Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, which many of us are familiar with. The Apostle Paul wrote a whole letter to the church in Ephesus, and the command to the church in Ephesus was, return to your first love. Their, their, their faith had become stale and formulaic. They were still doing good works and believing the right things, but they had lost their passion for Jesus Christ and for one another. And so they were commanded to return to a life that was rightly motivated, both uh, in in, in good works and, and, and good doctrine, but also with good love for one another and for Jesus. And then the letter to the church in Smyrna, a church that was undergoing persecution, that was struggling. Jesus' command to them was, don't be afraid. Instead, be faithful. Put aside the fear and rest in the promises that I give you. Now we get to the third church in chapter two, and it is the church of Pergamum. So if you read with me in Revelation chapter two, we're going to read that letter to the church in Pergamum. And it starts in verse 12 of Revelation chapter two, and then continues until verse 17. So if you got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got the Bible app, what you're going to see inside the Bible app this, this week is the passage and then the full summary slide. So you can actually work ahead. You already know everything. You could just leave now, I guess, and read your slides. Uh, but, but everybody else, you need to listen. We're going to get it teased out to you one little bit at a time. So the letter to the church in Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2 starting in verse 12. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So this short letter to the church in Pergamum, it holds a lot of symbolism, but it holds a whole lot of teaching and truth for us. And so those of us who have ears to hear, let us listen to what God's word has to say. First, Jesus introduces himself, and he says, uh, I am the one who has the sharp, double-edged Sword. Now, where does that come from? Well, of course, we can go back into chapter 1, and we see in the second half of chapter 1, John's vision of Jesus. And what does he look like? Well, he has a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, we talked, that was not literal. It was a vision, and it's symbolic of the power of the Word of God. How, like it tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that it's like a a sharp double-edged sword and that it cuts deep 
in its application in our life. It is a form of, of both destruction and judgment and also protection and conquering. And so God's word is rich and powerful and Jesus introduces himself as the bearer of this word. This word, as we look forward, is actually the word of judgment, a sword in which he will conquer that which is wrong and evil in the lives of believers. And so we see that Jesus is introducing himself. And so this church is facing, well, judgment. It's, it's critical. Every time he introduces himself, it usually is in line with what he is going to address in the life of each church. So this church needs the judgment of Christ to be clear in their lives. And he says this about them, this word of encouragement. I know your works. I know where you live. I know where Satan's throne is. I, I know that you're holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. And so he sees them and he sees just this church that is faithful in the midst of immense persecution. And, and when we talk about immense persecution, we're not just talking like, ah, oh, they had a bad day, but we're talking about someone, Antipas here, has already given his life for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And this whole church, as they watched a fellow believer die for the sake of Jesus, they still hold on to the faith. They still proclaim the name of Christ. And so he looks at them with joy and pride and says, I know that you're faithful. I know that you're holding on tight. I know that you still love me. But... He says, I have a few things against you. And, and here's what he has against them. This church that is living in a town where they're surrounded by emperor worship and worship of the Roman Empire. They, there's a, a well-known temple to Zeus here. A, a town that has faced persecution even to the point of death. And he says, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's what I have against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. See, the problem here, the church in Pergamum, while they were faithful and they were sticking with Jesus, and they were willing to, to even come to the point of death for their faith, they were compromising with false teachers. They were allowing people who were teaching lies into their midst and welcoming them in and just saying, hey, it's okay, you're one of us. I mean, you know, we don't agree and you're wrong and we're willing to stand up for our faith to the pagans, but, but you know, just, just come on in. Maybe you'll get better after a while, right? And, and the, the thing is, is we must understand that we can be decidedly faithful in so many ways and yet come to a point like the church in Pergamum where we're willing to compromise with false teachers. We're willing to look at them and go, ah, it's not that bad. Oh, the, the grace of Jesus will just cover all of that. It'll be okay. But Jesus himself is calling out Pergamum and every church since and saying, you must be careful not to compromise with false teachers. 
And it's, it's, it's kind of believed that this church was compromising with these false teachers in order that they might find acceptance in the culture around them. And maybe even experience personal gain. So they're surrounded by, by temples where, where there's worship of pagan gods going on. And what we must understand about the worship of these pagan gods is it wasn't something like maybe we have in our minds where you would walk in and just sacrifice a little bit of incense or something and then walk out. But instead, most of the time in this era, the worship of a pagan deity involved huge feasts where animals were sacrificed to the deity and then consumed as part of the feast. And usually the feasts would end in drunkenness and sexual immorality. And so when, when Jesus is calling this church out for their sexual immorality, and he's calling them out for their, their worship of false gods and, and idols, it's really they're doing things just so they can be part of the culture. They're doing things that, that the culture says, this is okay. In fact, this is part of what it means to be us. It, it, this is what it means to be part of, of life with us. And so these Christians were compromising in order to find acceptance. And, and maybe even it was necessary to participate in the marketplace for personal gain. That if you weren't a pagan worshiper, you were excluded. Now, this really brings us back to the th three circles we talked about last week. The, the fact that a, a right Christian faith is made up of three distinct things. That we have orthodoxy, which is right belief. And we have orthopathy, which is right feelings or right emotions. And the, the previous two churches addressed each of these different areas in specific ways. But then we have orthopraxy which is right practices. And Jesus is really telling this church in Pergamum, you have right beliefs and you have a right love for me, this faithfulness to me where you're willing to give your life, but you're not living your faith out as you should. You're tolerating false teachers. You're, you're allowing yourself and others around you to be led astray and do things that you know are decidedly against clear biblical teaching and a love for me. Now, hopefully we can hear this and, and we would ourselves begin to look at it and go, are we these kinds of people? Is this who we are? Now, it's important to understand uh, Jesus calls them out and says that they are, well, he says, uh, you are allowing those who hold to the teachings of Balaam to be in your midst. Now, some of us who grew up in Sunday school and all the great Bible stor stories were familiar with Balaam. Others of us, we maybe don't know who this is. And so it's important to understand all the way back in Numbers chapter 22 through 24, the Israelites are getting ready to come up into the promised land. And as they do so, they're crossing paths with, with well, other small nation states who don't want them there. And one of these men, one of these kings, Balak, he comes to someone who's known to be a prophet of God, Balaam. And he pays Balaam money to curse the Israelites. The story is hilarious. First of all, Balaam is riding his donkey. And, and those of you who grew up in Sunday school, you know, his donkey starts talking to him. And anytime your donkey starts talking, you know you're in trouble, right? Right? 
And, and his donkey tells him he's, he knows he's in disobedience to go and put a curse on God's people. What's interesting is Balaam, he actually goes in three times, goes with Balak to curse God's people. And each time as he's trying to speak a curse over the Israelites, he ends up blessing them. Like he just can't control what he's saying and ends up speaking a blessing over them. And Balak, the guy who is paying him to curse the Israelites, is like, dude, what is wrong with you? I've paid you. And three times now you have just blessed God's people instead of cursing them. What we find out, though, is later in the book of Numbers, chapter 31, verse 16, it tells us that Balaam gave Balak and his kingdom a means by which to lead the Israelites into cursing themselves. And what was that? Hey, let's send our pretty girls to them. Let's intermarry with them. Let's, let's have immorality with them. Let's teach them to worship our God. And if they do that, God will curse them. And, and this is the very thing that Jesus is warning the church in Pergamum about saying, listen, there is somebody in your midst who is so slippery. These false teachers who want to tell you, go do this and you'll be accepted. Go participate in this. It'll be okay. But you need to understand the end of this is cursing and destruction, just like it was for the people of Israel back in the time of Balaam. And so Jesus is calling this church out saying, you believe the right things, you love me the right way, but you're not living life the way you should. And you're tolerating others who live wrongly. Now this should, should really strike us deeply because we can see so many people in our midst, so many false teachers on television and selling books and on the internet and oh my gosh, on TikTok. If you get your doctrine and theology from TikTok, there is a 75% chance you are following a loony heretic. Just saying. Now, now some of you might go, well, there's this one person I follow. Yes, there's that one person. It's the 20,000 others who are false teachers and spouting lies and leading people astray that we need to be aware of and be, be, be uh, like, like careful about consuming ourselves. And, and we need to, to realize we can have right beliefs and right love all day long, but if we are not living rightly, we are falling short of the faith. And so Jesus is going to call us out and say to all of us, listen, I know you believe rightly. I know you love me, but why are you allowing these false teachers into your life? Why are you allowing these false teachers into your church? Why are you allowing people who tickle your ears and tell you the things that you want to hear about how to live this life? Why are you allowing them any ground in your life? Jesus says, I have this against you, Church of Pergamum. I have this against you, Faith Lakeside. I know you love me, and I know you believe rightly, but you're letting false teachers have an influence on you. He also says this, that there's another group there, the Nicolaitans. And we actually, we don't know who they were, but they were a group of false teachers who were infiltrating churches. We're going to see them mentioned in one of the other letters and we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but we think it was likely in line with sexual immorality and worshiping false gods. Isn't it interesting that sexual immorality and idolatry are the places where we're most easily tempted 
and led astray? That we look at them and we try and justify them? Oh, it's okay if I watch that, do that, read that. Because, you know, grace of God and all, right? Oh, it's okay if I love my truck more than Jesus. I mean, I have to have it for work. I'm not picking anybody. Don't, don't feel like, I don't know any secrets. If you drive a truck and you love it and it's for work, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about who I would be if I had a big truck and it was for work. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us, though, to be led astray in idolatry and sexual immorality. Especially when we understand sexual immorality is anything that we would think or look at or do outside of God's standards for marriage. And that idolatry is to worship anything with higher esteem and worth than we do our Savior. Now, you might say, well, I worship Jesus bigger, but do you worship him as often as that idol in your life? And so we can have right belief and right love and still fall short in wrong practice. And that's what Jesus is calling the church in Pergamum out for and what we who have ears should hear and listen to. So what is the call to obedience that Jesus gives them? He says this, hey guys, just try harder. I wish you could get it right. You know, be better people. I love you. It's so easy. Is that what he says? Do you see that there? Yeah, me either. You know what I see? He says, repent. And what does repent mean? If we, if we have a picture of repent, it would be kind of like you're, you're walking along carrying a burden and, and going the wrong direction and, and letting these things define your life. And it would be simply to drop what you're doing and turn around and, and turn back to Jesus. To allow that stuff to simply disappear from your life. Not to, to slowly wean yourself off of the idolatry and the immorality. Not to be like, well, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna step down a little bit. And because I just it would be too hard. No, repentance means to drop it and go the other way. Repent. Otherwise, otherwise. Ooh. Or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So all those who are practicing and falling prey to the false teachers will experience the sword of Jesus' mouth, which is judgment. Judgment. Now this should create some fear in us. (laughs) Don't you love it when, when... you're talking with somebody and you, you try and remind them of God's standards, God's love for them and his expectations for life. And they maybe will throw out you, do not judge or you too will be judged. And then the next one is, of course, is, well, only God can judge me. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And that should make you a hundred billion million quadrillion times more receptive to what I hear. Or, or what I have to say for you. Because if I judge you, do you know what happens to you? Nothing. We maybe don't get along so well in the future. When God casts judgment on us, 
A couple of things can happen. Number one, if you are not a believer and you face the judgment of eternal, almighty, perfect God, his judgment is not something to be taken lightly. Jesus talks about being cast into outer darkness where there is the weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That is the judgment that Jesus brings for those who are not his The judgment that comes for those of us who are saved but walking wrongly is a a, a deep and powerful discipline that will not be pleasant by any means. In fact, facing judgment is such, the Apostle Paul says, that we will have all of the good deeds that we thought were really important in our life burned away by the very judgment of God and we will escape into eternity, but only, only, just barely. And so judgment is is not something to be taken lightly. It is not something to be brushed off. And Jesus is telling this church and every other church who will listen, get things right. Cast out these false teachers or I will come. Now he says, uh, the translation here that I have, it says he will come quickly. He will come quickly. And a, a better understanding is, is likely for us in modern English speakers, he will come suddenly. In other words, judgment comes when we don't expect it. And that should be something that makes us ready to repent and cast out the false teachings in our life and get right with Jesus. And that brings us to a place where our our faith is balanced once again, where we have right beliefs and right love for Jesus, but we understand that it must result in a rightly lived life as well. And that is true, orthodox, biblical Christianity. Now, Jesus says, when you do this, I've got a promise for you. Everyone who conquers, and we see this repeated over and over again, everyone who conquers... Now, this doesn't mean you've got to take up a sword and fight. What it means is when you are obedient and you conquer the difficulties of this life, the persecution of this world, the sin that so easily entangles, when you obey the command you've been given, you and everyone else who conquers in this way will be rewarded. And Jesus says this, you will, uh, you will receive the hidden manna Now, this is an interesting thing. Most of us, we understand what manna is. We can go back into Exodus and we remember it is the bread that came down from heaven. It appeared every morning when the dew would would kind of burn off in the sunshine, there would be manna and they would gather it up and God always gave them just enough for each day except for the day before the Sabbath when he would give them enough for two days. If they tried to store it up, do you remember what would happen? It would rot after one day. So they couldn't store it up. They had to trust God daily for his provision. And there's kind of stories in first century Judaism that that God actually, at the day of creation, he had created all the manna that would be needed for all of time and stored it up in heaven. And that during the Exodus, some of that hidden stored up manna had been doled out to his people. And there was still a storehouse of provision that God had for his people in times of trouble and exodus. 
And as they conquered, that manna would be doled out, meeting their needs on a daily basis. Of course, Jesus also says that God gave the Israelites manna from heaven. But then what did he say about himself? He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread you've been waiting for. I'm the actual manna. And so when we receive the hidden manna, it's not necessarily going to be the dew that we gather up and it looks like coriander and rots after a day. It is instead that Jesus himself will be our provision. His very presence in the life of the conqueror will be all that we need to sustain us day by day. And he also says this, I will also give him a white stone and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now you might be wondering, what does that mean? And I'll tell you authoritatively, scholars disagree and I don't know for sure either. Right? So because what we have is in history, even in this era, a white stone could mean any number of things. It, um, it could be if you were on a jury and you were voting whether someone was innocent or guilty of a, a, an accusation. You would vote with a black stone if they were guilty and a white stone if they were innocent. It could be a simple symbol of purity. We always equate white in biblical terms with purity. That is not a skin color issue. That is a, the cleanliness of an item as it relates to holiness. And so a white stone is a holy stone, secure and perfect in what it is. Maybe it is a ticket to a banquet. That's what it was as well at times in this century. And so it could be that a white stone is an, a, a, a ticket into the very wedding feast of the bride with her groom. The, the one who is going to come and save us all, Jesus, the Christ, the, the bridegroom of the church, his bride, that everyone who conquers will receive an invitation to that feast. It could be as well, it was a practice that a slave would be given a white stone to carry with them as a symbol of their newfound freedom when they were released by their master. And so all of these things are possible. And what do, you, what do we think it is? One of those things, what's cool about all of them is they're all very similar, aren't they? They speak of forgiveness and innocence and acceptance into the very presence of God. And so whether it is a vote of innocence or a symbol of purity or an entrance ticket to a banquet or the, a symbol of the freedom of the slave, they're all intimately related to the fact that there will be something about our life that will change. And Jesus will give us this newfound purity and freedom and privilege of entering into his presence. And it says this, and on that stone will be a new name inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now you might wonder, well, what does that mean? I got a little bit more for you on this one. In the Old Testament, and even in the New, a name meant everything. A name was critical. And, and we can see some examples here. Just uh, Abram, 
He's first called by God. He is faithful, follows after God. His name means exalted father. But later on, God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of nations. Now, you and I, we name kids, we name each other, we give nicknames just because, you know, it sounds fun. I mean, maybe a nickname you got as a kid is more like a biblical name, you know? I don't know why my uncle called me Turkey, but maybe it was fitting and, and it spoke something about my character as a child. But, but that's what names meant in the Old Testament when God was bringing you to a new place, when he was changing your life, revolutionizing who you were, helping you understand your destiny, he would change your name. Jacob, his name means supplanter. If you understand and remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob, he, he is uh, holding on to his brother's heel during birth. It's like when you have twins in the womb, the first one out is the firstborn, right? Well, there was always a struggle between that firstborn, Esau, and Jacob, the secondborn. And when they are born, Jacob is holding on to his brother's foot. Like, oh, I just want to get out at the same time. And so he's named Supplanter, someone who wants to be in control. Later in his life, he wrestles with the angel of the Lord. His hip is knocked out of socket, and God changes his name to Israel. Contends with God. We, we can see the, the same kind of thing happening with Simon Peter. When we, we look at, at, at his name before, it means uh, a little stone and then it means rock as it's changed to Peter. We see as God wants you to understand a new thing about yourself, he would give you a new name. And so if you conquer, you are faithful, you receive this white rock that, that, that says something unique about your status and on it is a new name known to you, revealing who you are in Christ Jesus. You're redefined and renewed and set free when you remain faithful. And so this, this, this command and these promises to the church in, in Pergamum, it speaks to standing up against false teaching, standing up against the lies of the world, judging ourselves against the standards of Scripture before God has to come and judge us. And when we do so, when we repent, we will receive entry into his presence and a new name, a new way of looking at ourselves and seeing the world around us. How cool. The next church, Thyatira. I thought we could get four churches today. I was wrong. The letter to Thyatira, chapter 2 verses 18 through the end of the chapter. And so this is what Jesus tells John to write to the church in Thyatira. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Does that sound familiar? 
I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule over them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So Thyatira, as Jesus is introducing himself to this church, he says this, I am the Son of God. I'm the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. That fiery flame, he searches, he sees down into their innermost being, the depths of their soul. He understands who they are. And the feet like fine bronze, he is holy and righteous. He is pure beyond our understanding. And so when Jesus is making a judgment, when Jesus is searching into hearts, He's comparing us not to the person beside us, but to his own perfection and holiness, his own infinite righteousness. And so Jesus is looking at the the heart of the church in Thyatira. And what's interesting about this church is that he's got good stuff to say to them, but man, it turns on its heels quick. He says this, here's what I like about what's going on. I know your works. I know your love, your faithfulness, your service, your endurance, your works that are actually better now than they were when you got started. A sign that they were growing in their faith. And so this church has some good stuff going for it. But he says this to them. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Much like the church in Pergamum, they were struggling with false teachers. And instead of calling them the teachers of like Balaam, he says there is a one single woman who is leading them astray with false teaching. And they are allowing her to deceive believers with impunity. They're allowing this false teacher to come into their midst and to lead others astray. And and this is a huge indictment, not that they're struggling themselves with false teaching and, and not you know seeing the world wrongly, but instead they're just sitting back and letting a wolf in sheep's clothing come into their midst and pick off the congregation at will. And so... Jesus tells them, I've got a big issue with that and what's going on here. We, we would kind of, if we're taking these people in their circles, they, they have allowed orthopraxy and orthodoxy to shrink back and they're all about loving one another. Oh, we're going to, you know, come in, belong. We just, we love you. And, and they have allowed right teaching and right living to shrink away. Now, why would Jesus talk about Jezebel? Now, some of us, we've... Uh, 
we've used this term. I, I would hope you've never thought about naming your daughters Jezebel. Just once we get the context, you'll understand why. Jezebel was a queen of the northern kingdom of Israel in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, it says this about her and her husband. Still, there was no one like Ahab, who was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. By this time, Israel has had Saul as king, David as king, and Solomon, under which they reached their heyday as king. After Solomon, Solomon's son and one of his generals split the kingdom into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahab is a king in Israel. His capital is Samaria. It, it is, uh, if you guys remember, it's in Samaria, the, the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus uh, meets with in John chapter 4. This is where Ahab's kingdom was centered. And um, he devoted himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight. What a guy, right? His whole life was, was turned against God in rebellion because his wife Jezebel incited him. And she came from a family that had pagan roots and worshiped a false God, and she led him astray. He committed the most detestable acts by following idols as the Amorites had, whom the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. And so what we see all throughout this, this king's reign is that his wife plays an important part in his continuing, continuing evil acts. Many of you are familiar with the prophet Elijah. Elijah was the prophet who came to Ahab and Jezebel and told them, of their evil and their need for repentance. And they slaughtered prophets in the name of their false God. And they chased Elijah in the name of their false God. They killed good Jewish people in the name of their false God in order to have their own way. And so Jezebel and Ahab are known to be some of the greatest evil in the Old Testament. And so when John or Jesus tells John about Jezebel and John tells the church in Thyatira about Jezebel, it's not this actual lady come back to life, but it is a woman with power and influence who is stepping in and deceiving the church. And here's what Jesus says about her specifically. I've already given her a chance. I gave her time to repent. Jesus is saying essentially... Her time's up. And now it's time for you, church, to decide what you're going to do. Uh, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sick bed. In other words, she will be judged. She will be punished. She will be physically stricken with a sickness that will bring her to the edge of death. And those who commit adultery with her into great affliction... In other words, the ones who follow after her, who practice sexual immorality and worship false gods, will be brought into great difficulties. That word affliction, it's affliction, persecution, trouble, trials. The just reward for a life of sin. Unless they repent of her works. Interesting to note, isn't it, that there's still time for repentance for many of these folks. Revelation, in so many ways, is about repentance. 
and asking people to turn back to Jesus. Unless they repent of their works, I will strike her children dead. There's a promise that without repentance, those who follow after her will die in their sin. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, this one who examines minds and hearts, these eyes that search, this body that's holy and righteous in the picture of Jesus, he's judging, and he's judging works. Now, some of us would go, wait a minute, we don't get judged by our works, right? It's by grace through faith. Yes, it is by grace through faith. But scripture also tells us that even believers will ultimately face a moment of judgment for their works. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Maybe I need a bigger TV back there or better glasses. I haven't decided yet. For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, everyone who has built their life on the foundation of Jesus Christ is in the right. He says this, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones and wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day, and when he says the day here, he means the day of judgment. This is a shorthand way of referring to the day when Jesus looks at the works of every believer with his burning eyes and his glowing feet and judges. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Paul is telling the church there in Corinth, Jesus is telling the church here in Thyatira, every Christian will be judged according to their works. What you built on the foundation of Jesus Christ will face judgment. Paul calls it fire, and you can imagine what that is, the searching eyes of Jesus looking into us. And everyone who takes their salvation and their faith and builds on it garbage, they will still be saved, but their life will be of nothing. Their reward will be little to nothing. But the person who lives faithfully, the person who rejects Jezebel's and Balaam's, and walks rightly before God and builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ with good works that are genuinely in line with the teaching of Scripture will be rewarded. And that's what Jesus is telling the church in Thyatira. I'm going to give to each of you according to your works. If you have built on your salvation the foundation of Jesus Christ, if you have built on that a life of meaningless self-fulfillment and garbage... It will be burned away. You will be saved, but you will not be rewarded. But the person who builds their life on Jesus with good works that glorify him and build up the church and serve others, when the day of judgment comes, all of that will pass through the fire and you will be rewarded richly. 
And that's what Jesus is promising the church here in Thyatira. He's promising everyone who will repent that if you will get rid of the garbage, you can build once again fresh with good works. And I will lift you up and you will experience blessing. Now, he says this then to to those who have struggled but yet not given in to the teachings of Jezebel. Hold on. Hold on until I come. Just keep on keeping on. And that's where some of us are. We're watching people collapse around us. People believe the lies, wondering, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus simply says, first of all, don't fall prey to it yourself. And second of all, hold on tight. I'm coming back for you eventually. So there's that call to obedience. And then finally, what is the promise? What is the promise? That he who conquers and keeps doing good works until the end will reign with Jesus on the throne. And that's what he promises. Uh, Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. That's a quote from Psalm chapter two, verse nine. And so the same authority given to Jesus over the broken and, and evil things of this world, he will give to us in order to rule over them and to crush them. We'll get to rejoice as we watch evil be destroyed and have authority over it. Doesn't that sound good? Not, not necessarily the people who get sucked in, but just to be able to say in our own life, in the world of, around us, in the lives of others, evil's no more, and I got to help squash it. That sounds so cool to me. First of all, in my own heart, to conquer evil in my own heart, that'll be the day, won't it? That'll be awesome. I can't wait to see Jesus face to face and reign with him over the evil that's in me, but also to squash the evil that's around. We'll have that privilege. And also we will receive the morning star. Now you might guess who the morning star is. It's Jesus himself. The one who rises up in the morning and defeats the darkness and reveals to us the glory of the father. Three churches left. Maybe we'll get two of them next week. We'll see. As we wrap up today, and I realize I've, we've gone through a lot, but John told me I could preach as long as I wanted. If uh, There'll be a flogging of John afterwards if, if you're upset. Uh, so that'll be in the foyer right after the service. The challenge here is to, to take, and if you have ears to hear, I want you to listen to what the Spirit has to say to these two churches because he's speaking to us as well. Number one, do you need to repent of living by worldly standards and practices for personal gain? Are you compromising in your life in order to be accepted by others, in order to get ahead? Are you finding yourself accepting false teaching and sin and things that you know are clearly against God's word so that somebody will bring you in and say, hey, buddy, good to have you here. If you are, the command for you and me both, repent of living worldly stand, by worldly standards and practices for personal gain. Stop it. Stop it. 
And then second, maybe you're feeling defeated today. Maybe you're feeling like the world is coming crashing down. You're watching TV and there's politics and there's wars and rumors of wars. There's earthquakes and crazy weather. And you're going, oh no, evil is winning. Hold on. Jesus is coming back for you. Hold on. Stick with the faith. Turn to Jesus all the more. He promises that the evil will be defeated and will have a hand in it. And also that we will know him and he will give us himself and a new name. The things you used to call yourself gone and they'll now call you sons and daughters. Believers accepted. Repent and hold on. Let's close in a word of prayer. If everyone would bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want you to hear these two commands and to think, do either of these apply to me? Repent of living by worldly standards and practices for personal gain. Or hold on until Jesus comes. Do either of these commands apply to you this morning? Maybe both do in some form or fashion. Would you talk to Jesus as you hear these commands upon your life? Would you repent? Would you let him know of your utter dependence on him and that you need help holding on? Whatever it is, this is meant to be a blessing for you as you hear this word and as you obey it. Our precious Lord Jesus, Son of God, the bearer of the sword with searching eyes and perfect holiness, as you look down upon us today, would you help us to have ears to hear and to listen and respond rightly? to what you're speaking to us as individual believers and as a, as a church. Help us to see the places where we're compromising and worshiping idols and practicing immorality so that others will like us. Show us those things and, and help us to repent of those things. And instead to stand firmly on your word and to leave behind those practices and to begin to do what you say. But Jesus, may we not fall prey to the Balaams and the Jezebels who would seek to take from us right living and would lead us astray into sinfulness. Help us to avoid them. Help us to see them for who they are. And even now that you would speak their names into our hearts and minds and that we would change how we interact with them. Father, some of us 
Lord Jesus, today some of us, as, as we are under your gaze, we feel crushed by the weight of the sin all around us. We're trying so hard to be faithful and true. So we, we ask that you would help us to hold on. Help us to hold on to you. In a world that is run by people who look like pagans and fools. Help us to look past them into you and your eyes and your perfection. And to hold on to your feet and to, to cry out our need for you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for these words to these churches and how they're still for us today. All of us who have ears to hear, help us to listen and to obey what you're speaking to us through your word. We offer up to you this last song as a sacrifice of praise. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. If you have questions or you'd like to talk to someone about knowing Jesus better, would you feel free to grab a friend or grab some of the literature or come forward and talk with me and we'll help you to understand more. Or maybe you've, you've got a struggle and you need someone to hold you accountable. Find a friend to confess to, to say, I need to repent of this. Help me to do it. Or I'm struggling. Pray for me as I hold on. But this last song, count it as an invitation to take the first step to do what God's laid on your heart during our time together. Let's close with this song.